Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And if you uh, heard my last podcast, the one before this one, then uh, surprise, surprise, I'm uh, getting in this podcast uh, long before I thought I'd be able to. In other words, uh, our forced move is uh, proceeding better than I'd uh, I thought it was going to. So I'll save those stories until the end of the podcast if I get a chance. But uh, thanks for all of your words of encouragement, and uh, I want you to know that everything is proceeding smoothly. But uh, right now, what I want to do first is to uh, thank some of our fellow saloners who made donations to help keep these podcasts online, even though uh, they thought that I wouldn't get around to thanking them publicly here in the podcast. So a big thank you for keeping the salon's fire burning goes to Chris T., Alec M., and uh, longtime salon supporter Mark C., who sent a note that read, No need to mention me on the show anymore, and I hope you get other regular, quote, subscribers, unquote. Thanks for your continued work, and happy holidays. Now, uh, the reason Mark said that is that uh, for the past year or so, Mark has made a modest donation to the salon every month. And the reason I find his contribution so remarkable is that, unlike many podcasters, I've uh, not set up a way to automatically have a donation sent to the salon. So uh, Mark has had to uh, think of it on his own each month and go to the trouble of sending another donation. And that's why he puts subscribers in quotes. He's uh, not referring to the thousands of iTunes uh, subscribers and other subscribers through the RSS feed, without whom I wouldn't have much reason to do these podcasts, by the way. And in case you're wondering uh, why I don't set up something uh, like he suggests, a regular subscription donation uh, button... Well, it's because I'd then feel obligated to do a program each and every week, as uh, do the professionals like my friends KMO and the Dope Fiend. However, I have to admit that it was uh, Mark's donation that got me back into action this week, and so I'm dedicating this first podcast of 2011 to Mark C., Chris T., Alec M., and to the 11 fellow saloners who purchased the copy of my pay-what-you-can audiobook, The Genesis Generation, who also provided some significant donations that I'm using both for the salon and for our moving expenses. And in particular, I I want to thank Alan A. for what must be a record payment for a pay-what-you-can novel. That was way over the top, Alan, and I deeply appreciate it. In fact, uh, to all of our supporters out there in podcast land, hey, uh, thanks for being here. And uh, as one of our fellow saloners just told me, I'll say the same thing should go for all of us, and that is to press on. Which uh, is what I'd better do right now, or we'll never get to the heart of this program, which is a lecture by Alan Watts. I first heard uh, part of this talk in an audio file that I received from, uh, oh, I guess about a half a dozen people. And my guess is that it must have been part of a torrent, because uh, when I first opened it, I discovered that only half the talk was there, and that was the uh, case in all the copies that were sent to me. So uh, I put it aside and more or less forgot about it. But when I was looking for another Alan Watts talk to play today, the title jumped out at me right away because the file was titled Religion and Sexuality. And uh, to be honest, that may actually be the most accurate title for this talk. Anyway, I started searching the net for the whole talk, and while I never found it all in one piece, I did find it broken into uh, 10-minute bits on YouTube, uh, at least parts of it. But even that sounded as if it had uh, been kind of kludged together from different recordings. 
So what I'm about to play is a collage that may actually be put together very close to the way the talk was first given. At least I hope so. And uh, as you already know, I've used a different title. In fact, uh, I actually found this talk under a number of different titles, but being a retired marketing guy and realizing that I had to get people's attention to come back into the salon after my being away for a few weeks, well, I, uh, I thought maybe I should use a more provocative title, uh, particularly since his main focus is Christianity, which is only natural, of course, since uh, he was an ordained Episcopalian priest. But uh, today, however, of course, he's mainly known as one of the first popularizers of Zen Buddhism here in the States. So now let's listen to what Alan Watts thought about why sex is such a taboo in almost every religion. And uh, then I'll come back and add a quick thought or two about psychedelics and sex, uh, which for sure I'm probably a lot more competent to talk about than uh, religion. (laughs) So anyway, here's Alan Watts. I don't think I need to tell you that in a very special and peculiar way, Western man is hung up on sex. And the major reason for this is that he has a religious background quite unique among the religions of the world. I'm thinking specifically of Christianity and in the secondary way, Judaism, insofar as Judaism in Europe and the United States is strongly influenced by Christianity. But Christianity is, of all religions in the world, the one uniquely preoccupied with sex. More so than priapism, more so than tantric yoga, more so than any kind of fertility cult which has ever existed on the face of the earth. There has never, never, never been a religion in which sexuality was so important. And there are certain very simple standards by which this can be judged. In popular speech, when you say of a given person that he or she is living in sin, you know very well that you do not mean that they are engaged in a business to defraud the public by the sale of uh, badly made bread or uh, anything of that kind. You know that they're not uh, setting up a check forgery business? No. People who are living in sin are people who have an irregular sexual partnership. In the same way when you say something is immoral, Uh, it pretty much means that it's something sexually irregular. I remember when I was a boy in school, we used to have a preacher. He came to us every year, the same man, once a year, and he always talked on the subject of drink, gambling, and immorality. I remember the way he rolled it round his tongue, and it was very clear what immorality was. And also... I might point out that present company accepted the Unitarian Church being somewhat unusual. Most churches in America and in England and in other parts of uh, the Western world are, frankly, sexual regulation societies. (laughs) They occasionally get excited about other moral issues but really not very much. 
In other words, when you ask, what can people get kicked out of church for? Let's suppose that you consider important ministers, bishops, priests, and so on. Uh, they can live in envy, hatred, malice, and all uncharitableness, and be in perfectly good standing. But the moment anything about their sexual life becomes a little unusual, out you go. And that's about the only thing you can go out for. You study, for example, a Roman Catholic manual of moral theology. These manuals of moral theology are technical books about sins of all kinds, just exactly what they are, how they're done, how grave they are, for mostly for the advice of confessors. And they're always arranged according to the Ten Commandments. And uh, when they get to the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, the volume expands like this. In fact, it occupies two-thirds of the whole book. All the details. So we have, in a very special way, got sex on the brain, which isn't exactly the right place for it. Now, this needs going into because it is not as simple as it looks. There are really two roots of the whole problem. One of them is the problem of why sexual pleasure of all pleasures, as a kind of really supreme pleasure, is singled out for religious people to be particularly afraid of. This is not only true in Christianity. I say Christianity emphasizes it in a certain way, but in uh, Asian religions also, especially in India, there is a prevailing view that if you want to attain real heights of spirituality, the one thing you must give up is sexuality. In the ordinary sense of uh, genital sexual relationships with man or woman, as the case may be. And this reflects in part, you see, an attitude to the physical world. Because it is, after all, through sexuality that we have, along with eating, our most fundamental relationship to materiality, to nature, to the physical universe. And it is the point at which we can become most attached to the body, to the physical organism, to material life. That's one reason why it's problematic. The other reason why it's problematic is more subtle. And that is that sexuality is something which you cannot get rid of. Do what you may, life is sexual in the sense, for example, that you are either male or female. There are various other gradations, uh, but basically there are forms of maleness and femaleness. And also that every one of you is the result of sexual intercourse. And this feature of life uh, can be looked at in one of two ways. You can say on the one hand that all man's higher ideals, his spirituality and so forth, is simply repressed sexuality. 
Or on the other hand, you can say that human sexuality is a manifestation, a particular form or expression of what is spiritual, metaphysical, divine, or whatever you want to call it. I hold to the latter view. I don't think that religion is repressed sexuality. I think, however, that sexuality is just one of the many forms in which uh, whatever all this is expresses itself. But you see, if this thing is something you cannot get rid of, and if you realize that indeed a way of life in which sexuality is in some way put down or repressed is nonetheless an expression of sexuality, then we come to a view of a religion in which sex is a very special taboo, which is rather unusual. It's normally said, you see, yes, the Christianity is a religion in which sex is taboo, and this, there's simply no getting around it. I know up-to-date ministers today are, think sex is all right. It's perfectly okay if you're married and you've got a mature relationship with a woman. Uh, it's all right, and they kind of damn it with faint praise. But if you read anything of Christian writings prior, shall we say, to 1850, to set a date rather arbitrarily, you will find that it's not all right. Not at all. It's tolerated between married couples and strictly for the procreation of children. But on the whole, to do without it is best. As St. Paul put it, it's better to marry than to burn. To burn with the fire of lust and ultimately to burn in hell. But always, consistently, there is simply no getting away from it. In all the writings of the Church Fathers, from St. Paul himself right through to St. Ignatius Loyola or any of the great relatively modern uh, leaders of Catholic spirituality, or you can look at Calvin, you can look at uh, great Protestants, John Knox. On the whole, sex is sin and sex is dirt. And you can say very simply that this is all bad and something very wrong, but I want to point out that there is another side to all this. There is no way of making a hedge grow like pruning it. There is no way of making sex interesting like repressing it. And as a result of all these centuries of sexual repression and associating it with dirt, the West has developed a peculiar form of eroticism. But that is a, an aspect of this whole problem which I don't think is really very profitable to explore. I just want to mention it in passing that the whole attitude of anti-sexuality in the Christian tradition is not as anti as it looks. 
It is simply a method of making sex prurient and in a, exciting in a kind of dirty way. And I suppose it's to be recommended for people who are not feeling very frisky and uh, need to be pepped up. <laughs> the other side of the problem is much more interesting. That is to say, uh, the first thing I mentioned, why it is that there has been a problem for human beings about pleasure. And we'll take sexual activity as a supreme pleasure, as a supreme involvement of oneself with the body and with the physical world. Why should there be a problem here? Well, the point is simply, isn't it, that the physical world is transient. It's impermanent. It falls apart. And bodies that were once strong, smooth, and lovely in youth begin to wither and become corrupt and turn at last into skeletons. And if you cling on to one of those and it suddenly turns into a skeleton in your hand, as it will if you speed up your sense of time a little, you feel cheated. And there has been for centuries a lament about this, that life is so short that all the beauties of this world fall apart. And therefore, if you are wise, you don't set your heart on mortal beauty, but you set on heart your heart on spiritual values that are imperishable. Even that supposed tippler and rake Omar Khayyam says that the worldly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes or it prospers, and anon like snow upon the desert's dusty face, lighting a little hour or two is gone. And so don't bet on that horse. And read any kind of spiritual literature you want to. Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Taoist, all of them seem to emphasize the importance of detachment from the body, from the physical world, so that you won't be engulfed in the stream of impermanence. The idea being, you see, that to the degree that you identify yourself with the body and with the pleasures of the body, to that degree, you are simply going to be something that is sucked away in the course of transiency. So, therefore, hold yourself aloof. As in, for example, the advice of many Hindus in the practice of yoga, you are advised to look upon all sensory experiences as something out there, which you simply witness. You yourself identify yourself with the eternal, spiritual, unchanging self, the witness of all that goes on, but who is no more involved in it than, say, the smoothness or the color of a mirror is affected by the things which it reflects. Keep your mind like a mirror. 
pure and clean, free from dust, free from flaws, free from stain. And just reflect everything that goes on, but don't be attached. You will find this all over the place. But it has always seemed to me that that attitude of essential detachment from the physical universe has underlying it a very serious problem. The problem being why a physical universe at all in that case. If God has, uh, in, is in some way responsible for the existence of a creation, and if this creation is basically a snare, why did he do it? And of course, according to some theologies, the physical universe is looked upon as a mistake, as a fall from the divine state, as if something went wrong in the heavenly domain and causing spirits such as we are to fall from their high estate and to become involved with animal bodies. And so there is an ancient analogy of man which runs right through to the present time that your relationship to your body is that of a rider to a horse. St. Francis called his body brother ass. That you are a rational soul in charge of an animal body. And therefore, if you belong to the old-fashioned school, you beat it into submission. As St. Paul said, I beat my body into submission. Or if you are a Freudian, you treat your horse not with a whip, but with lumps of sugar, kindly, but still it's your horse. Even in Freud, there is a very, very strong element of Puritanism. Read Philip Reef's book on Freud, the mind of the moralist, and how he shows that Freud basically thought that sex was de degrading. But nevertheless something biologically unavoidable, something terribly necessary, which couldn't just be swept aside. It had to be dealt with. But there is, you see, that heritage of thinking of ourselves as divided, the ego as the rational soul of spiritual origin, and the physical body as the animal component. And therefore, all success in life, spiritual success, requires the spiritualization of the animal component the sublimation of its dirty and uh, strange urges so that it's thoroughly cleaned up. I suppose the ideal sexual relationship of such persons would be held on an operating table under disinfectant sprays. <coughs> now it is of course true that the physical world, its beauty, and so on, is transient. We are all 
falling apart in some way or another, especially after you pass the peak of youth. But it's never struck me that that is something to gripe about. That the physical world is transient seems to me to be part of its splendor. I can imagine nothing more awful than, say, attaining to the age of 30 and suddenly being frozen. In that age for always and always. You would become a kind of we would all be a sort of animated waxworks in that age for always and always. You would become a kind of, we would all be a sort of animated waxworks. And you would discover, as a matter of fact, that people who had that physical permanence would feel like plastic. And that is, as a matter of fact, what is going to be done about us by technology in order to attain perpetual youth. All the parts of us that decay and, f and fold up are going to be replaced by very skillfully manufactured plastic parts. So that in the end, we will be entirely made of very, very sophisticated plastic. And everybody will feel like that and everybody will be utterly bored with each other. Because the very fact you see that the world is always decaying and always falling away is the same thing as its vitality. Vitality is change. Life is death. It is always falling apart. And so there are certain supreme moments, you see, at which in the body we attain superb vitality. And that's the time. Make it then. That's the moment, just like when an orchestra is playing, the conductor wants to get a certain uh, group of, say, violins to come in at a certain moment, and he's conducting, and he's got to now make it. And they all have to go, right now, you see. Of course, that's the whole art of life. To do it at the right time, to do it in time, like you dance or you play in time. And so in the same way, when it comes to love, sexuality, or equally so, in all the pleasures of gastronomy, timing is of the essence. And then it's happened and you've had it. But that's not something that one should look upon with regret. It only is something regrettable if you didn't know how to take it when it was timely. And this is really the essence of what I want to talk to you about. Because you see, to be detached from the world in the sense that Buddhists and Taoists and Hindus will often talk about detachment, does not mean to be non-participative. You can have a sexual life very rich and very full, and yet all the time be detached. 
By that I don't mean that you just go through it mechanically and have your thoughts elsewhere. I mean a complete participation, but still detached. And the difference of the two attitudes is this. On the one hand, there is a way of being so anxious about physical pleasure, so afraid that you won't make it, that you grab it too hard. That you, you just have to have that thing. And if you do that, you destroy it completely. And therefore, after every attempt to get it, you feel disappointed. You feel empty, you feel something was lost. And therefore, you want it again. You have to keep repeating, 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 because you never really got there. And it's this that is the hang-up. This is what is meant by attachment to this world, in an evil sense. But on the other hand, pleasure in its fullness cannot be experienced when one is grasping it. I knew a little girl to whom someone gave a bunny rabbit. She was so delighted with a bunny rabbit and so afraid of losing it that taking it home in the car, she squeezed it to death with love. And lots of parents do that to their children. And lots of spouses do it to each other. They hold on too hard. And so take the life out of this transient, beautifully fragile thing that life is. To have it, to have life, and to have its pleasure, you must at the same time let go of it. And then you can feel perfectly free to have that pleasure in the most gutsy, rollicking, earthy, lip-licking way. One's whole being taken over by a kind of undulative, convulsive uh, ripple, which is like the very pulse of life itself. This can happen only if you let go. If you are willing to be abandoned, it's funny that word, abandon. We speak of people who are dissolute as being abandoned, but we can also use abandon as the characteristic of a saint. A great spiritual book by a Jesuit father is called Abandonment to the Divine Providence. There are people like that who just aren't hung up. They are the poor in spirit. That is to say, they in spiritually are poor in the sense they don't cling on to any property. They don't carry burdens around. They're free. Well, just that sort of spiritual poverty, that let-go-ness, is quite essential for the enjoyment of any kind of pleasure at all, and particularly sexual pleasure. Now, when I was a boy in school, I'll go back to this, because my experience may not be... I don't know how typical it would be of children brought up in the United States in a religious environment. 
But my experience in England was quite fascinating. Uh, about, you know, when one is baptized as a child, and uh, you don't know anything about it, and your godfathers and godmothers are your sponsors, then there comes a time when you are about to enter into puberty, when you are confirmed, when you undertake for yourself your own baptismal vows that were made on behalf of you. And in England, confirmation into the Church of England, which is Episcopalian in this country, confirmation is preceded by instruction. And this instruction consisted very largely of lessons in church history, because the British approach to religion is peculiarly archaeological. Uh, it is based on the, the great past, the great Christian saints and heroes. And uh, it's, it's really quite interesting because it somehow associates you and puts you in the tradition of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and all that sort of thing. But the time comes when every candidate for confirmation has a private talk with the school chaplain. And uh, obviously in every process of initiation into mysteries, from time immemorial, there has been the passing on of a secret. And so there's a certain anticipation about this very private communication. Because you would think if you are being initiated into a religion, what the secret consists of is some marvelous information about the nature of God or the fundamental uh, reason for being and so on. But not so in this case. The initiatory secret talk was a serious lecture on the evils of masturbation. <laughs> What these evils were, were not clearly specified. <laughs> and so, uh, but it was vaguely hinted that ghastly diseases would result. <laughs> and so uh, we used to, in sort of in a perverse way, enjoy tormenting ourselves with imaginations as to what kind of terrible venereal diseases, epilepsy, tuberculosis, and the great Siberian itch would... <laughs> result from this practice. <laughs> now the extraordinary thing about it is this, that the very chaplain who gave these lectures had in his own upbringing been given the same lecture by other chaplains, and this went back some distance in history, I imagine. And they all knew perfectly well that one of the characteristic uh, behavior patterns of adolescence is ritual defiance of authority. But uh, you have to make some protest against authority, and in this you are in league with all your contemporaries, your peer group. And nobody, of course, would dream of giving anybody else away, because that would be to be a tattletale, a skunk, definitely not one of the boys. <laughs> and so, therefore, quite obviously, masturbation provided the ideal outlet for this ritual defiance because it was fun, it was also an assertion of masculinity, and it was very, very wicked. <laughs> so I meditated on this some time as to why the system continued. And I came to the realization that the Christian put-down of sex is an extremely mysterious thing. In the 
religious background of the Western world, we have in the main two traditions. One Semitic and one Greek. So far as the Semitic tradition is concerned, the material world and sexuality are definitely good things. Both Jews and Muslims think that uh, God's creation of beautiful women was a grand idea. In the Arabic book, which is their Islamic version of the Kama Sutra, known as the Perfumed Garden, the book opens with a prayer to Allah, which is a thanksgiving, a very full, detailed thanksgiving for the loveliness of women, with which Allah has blessed mankind. And in the book of Proverbs, we are enjoined to enjoy our wives while they are young. But uh, on the whole, it is the Semitic belief that sexuality is justified solely for purposes of reproduction of the species. This uh, makes it good in the eyes of God and sexual energy should not really be wasted for other purposes. That's the limitation put on it. Now on the other hand we have a Greek tradition which is peculiar in that it is strongly influenced by a dualistic view of the universe in which material existence is conceived as a trap as a fall into turgid, clogging matter which is antagonistic to the lightness and freedom of the spirit. And therefore, for certain kinds of Greek religion, among which we must name the Orphic Mysteries, the Neoplatonic point of view, and the later Gnostic points of view, being saved means being delivered from material existence into a purely spiritual state. From this point of view, sexual uh, involvement is the very archetype of material involvement. Mater, mother, matter, matter are really the same word. And so the love of woman is the great snare. This is, incidentally, a doctrine invented by men. <laughs> and it goes back to the words of Adam. The woman that thou gavest me, she tempted me, and I did eat. <laughs> now, in the development of Christian theology, from approximately the time of St. Paul through the beginning of the Renaissance, it was universally held that sex was a bad thing. You should read St. Augustine on this. He said that in the Garden of Eden before the fall, reproduction took place in just the same way and uh, with just the same lack of excitement as one excretes 
or passes water, and there was no uh, shameful excitation of the sexual parts. And uh, the whole attitude of the church fathers in those centuries <coughs> was that the virgin state was immensely superior spiritually to the married state and that sexual relationships were excusable only within the bonds of marriage and for the sole purposes of reproduction and the manual, the moral penitentiaries of the, the theologians of the Middle Ages list all sorts of penances that must be said even by married couples who performed sexual intercourse on the night before attending Mass were still before receiving Holy Communion and of course it must utterly be avoided on certain great uh, church festivals. <coughs> So although, in theory, marriage is a sacrament which somehow blesses this peculiar relationship, there is a definite attitude that it is, after all, dirty and not very nice. Now you must realize, too, that in those days the institution of marriage was not what it is today. Marriage, at the time of the rise and development of Christianity was a social institu institution for alliances between families. You did not marry the person of your own choice except under the most peculiar circumstances. You married the girl your family picked out for you and they thought it over carefully from its political point of view as well as from the point of view of eugenics and uh, whether this was a good healthy girl and whether this was a good healthy man and they had an economic bargaining about it and you married this girl you weren't necessarily in love with her and it was perfectly well understood in the secular world that on the side uh, you had other arrangements uh, you had if you could afford them concubines or even second and third and fourth wives and these uh, subsidiary wives were, um, um, there was a somewhat more choice open to you in getting those than in the first one. first one is definitely a family arrangement. Now that's the context of it, don't forget that. So what the church was saying was only that woman should be your bedfellow whose marriage has been arranged by paternal authority. The idea of romantic love does not arise in connection with marriage until the troubadour cults of southern France, of Provence, in the late Middle Ages. When there begins to be this idea of the idealization of a woman as the inspiring uh, goddess, almost, of the knight errant. Dante's Beatrice is the inspiring woman who leads him to heaven. Now historians are not agreed as to whether the lady loves of the chivalrous knights were in fact their mistresses or whether they were simply idealized women. 
But the influence of the cult of romantic love on the West was profound. And it brought about a weird combination of ideas. One, the notion of the married state being the only licit relationship in which sexual uh, play might be carried on. And two, the notion that the girl you marry should be the one you've fallen in love with. Two more ill-adjusted ideas could hardly be put together. <laughs> because naturally, when you love someone very much indeed, in the enthusiasm and ardor of youth, you say things that are hardly logical or rational. You stand up before an altar and you say, my darling, my sweetheart, my perfect pet, I adore you so much that I will live with you forever and ever until death do us part. And that's the way you feel at the time. In a rather similar mood, ancient peoples would hail their kings and say, O king, live forever. Obviously this was not literally meant. They were just wishing him a long life. But to live forever, no sir, no mortal does that. So. The trouble was, you see, that when uh, certain kinds of extravagant poetic expressions got in the hands of people like Augustine and Tertullian, who were rather influenced by Roman literalness, they wrote it into the law books. And so this amazing situation came about. But we still have not fully explored the subtlety of it. Let us consider certain periods when uh, this attitude of prudism towards sexuality was in, a, in an ascendancy. Nearest to our times is the bourgeois uh, revolution, you might call it, in Victorian England and the United States. We all say Victorian uh, as an adjective to indicate Grundyism. Uh, extreme monogamy, uh, a definite disgust for all things sexual. And yet, when we really go into the history of the Victorian period, we find that it was an extremely lascivious epoch. <laughs> One has only to look at the lushness of Victorian furniture to realize that chairs are disguised women. That the way even piano legs are shaped, I mean, this kind of thing is throughout Victorian art forms. And the conduct of the British aristocracy during that period beggared description. <laughs> People like Freud and Havelock Ellis made certain mistake. Uh, they said about the church and about religion in general that it was nothing but a form of sublimated sex. They said these people, for curious reasons, suppress sex. And therefore it becomes uh, a very powerful force for them. You must remember, of course, that they worked on a hydraulic analogy of human psychology. That uh, they liken it all to a river. If you dammed it up, it would burst the dam. It doesn't actually follow that human psychology is hydraulic. But this is the metaphor they used. 
Now they said the church has repressed sex. But actually if you look at its symbolism, it is nothing but an expression of sex. Everything is reduced to libido as the fundamental reality. And the church replied, it's nothing of the kind. We deny this. We think that this reduction of everything to sex is just a way of uh, attacking holy things. And on the contrary, we would say that people who are fascinated with sex and make it their god are, repre are repressing religion. <laughs> now the problem in this debate, everybody missed the boat. Uh, the church should have been in the position to say to Freud, well, of course, thank you very much. Uh, uh, yes, indeed, our symbolism is sexual. The steeples on our churches, <laughs> the uh, vesicle-shaped windows and uh, so heraldic shields on which we put images of the crucifix or the Virgin Mother of God. These are all quite plainly sexual but you see the sexual biology in its turn reveals the mysteries of the universe sex is not mere sex sex is a holy thing and is uh, one of the most marvelous revelations of the divine but imagine the church just couldn't say that if you look at Tibetan Buddhist iconography, their images, or you look in Hindu temples, you will find things that Europeans and Americans have never been able to understand. Here are images of Buddhas and of the gods engaged in amazing diversions with their female counterparts. <laughs> and everybody thinks that these are kind of dirty sculptures. <laughs> now they're nothing of the kind. They are saying to the people who look at them, the play of man and woman is on that level, on the level of biology, a reflection of the fundamental play of the cosmos. The play of the positive and negative principles, of the light and the dark, of the mental and the material, they all play together. <coughs> And the function of sexual play is not merely the survival and utilitarian function of reproducing the species as it is among animals to a very large extent. What peculiarly distinguishes human sexuality is that it brings the partners closer and closer to each other in an intense state of united feeling. In other words, it is a sacrament, the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace bringing about love. And so, if that is peculiar to human beings, it is perfect nonsense to degrade human sexuality by saying it should only be carried on in the way that the animals do theirs. Because they have not yet, as it were, evolved to the place where sex is the sacramental expression of man and woman's love and this love in that sense is a kind of enthusiasm which means a being possessed by the divine 
falling in love, uh, although considered by practical people to be a sort of madness, is actually the same sort of thing as the mystical vision, uh, a grace. And in its light, we see people in their divine aspect. When, as the song says, every little breeze whispers Louise, uh, there is a sort of extraordinary state of mystical intoxication in which the ideal woman has become the goddess. Which is, from one point of view, what every woman is, if you see her with the scales off your eyes. And likewise every man, seen with the scales off her eyes. So, what happened then, as a result of this historical situation, was mutual name-calling between the proponents of religion and the proponents of uh, scientific naturalism, such as Freud and uh, Havelock Ellis, and in our own times, Albert Ellis, uh, and people of that kind. They've never got together because they've never understood neither the church nor the opponents of the church have clearly understood that the secret or unconscious motivation of sexual repression is to make it all the more interesting and on the other side it has not been clearly understood that the sexual biology and all that goes with it is a figuring forth on the level of biology of what the whole universe is about. Ecstatic play. <coughs> so as a result, there has been a kind of compromise. Today, in ecclesiastical circles, sex is being damned with faint praise. Uh, people are saying, after all, yes, uh, sex was made by God, and we should remember the Jewish point of view. And uh, it is uh, perhaps for something more than reproduction to bring about the cementing of the marriage ties between husband and wife. But... Still in practice, it remains the frightening taboo. On the other hand, the opposition to Christian prudery goes overboard and always moves in the direction of total license. You see, what's going on is a contest between the people who want the skirts pulled down to the floor and the people who want them pulled up to the neck. <laughs> and you, you know, you've got to draw the line somewhere. But the play between these forces is where are we going to draw it? Well, that's very exciting. <laughs> Provide neither side wins. I mean, imagine what it would be like if the Libertines won. 
and they took over the church so that on Wednesday evenings the young uh, Presbyterian group would meet for prayer through sex. <laughs> yeah, every child would go to the school physician for a course in hygienics and they would have classes and they'd have plastic models and all the children would do it in class in very clean hygienic circumstances all sprayed with rubbing alcohol. Everything would be fine. Imagine how boring it would all become. So you see, the people who say no, modesty is important, have something right about them. But they mustn't be allowed to get away with it. But they mustn't be obliterated. You see, life works that way. Let's take an entirely different analogy. Let's take a given biological group, a species we'll call A. It has a natural enemy, B. Now one day A gets furious at the natural enemy B and says let's obliterate it. And they gather their forces and they knock out their natural enemy. Well, suddenly after a while they begin to get weak. They get overpopulated. There's nobody around to eat up their surplus creatures and they don't have to keep their muscles tensed against any enemy and they begin to fall apart because they destroyed their enemy. What they should do is cultivate the enemy. That's the real meaning of love your enemy. There is such a thing as a beloved enemy. <laughs> and if you don't have a beloved enemy, in other words, if the flies and the spiders don't go together, there are going to be too many spiders or too many flies. And these balances uh, keep the course of nature going. Well, it's exactly the same thing as between the libertines and the prudes. They need each other. And you should thank, if you've got a prudish father and mother, you should be very grateful to them for having made sex so interesting. <laughs> so don't defy them completely. Don't go around campus with placards bearing four-letter words. <laughs> because that's going to spoil the show. But every generation must react to the one before you see, to keep this tension going. And it is by this tension, this play of the opposites, that we have the love that makes the world go round. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I have to admit that uh, just now when he said, so... If you've got a prudish father and mother, you should be very grateful to them for having made sex so interesting. And my first thought was that I should also be thanking all of the nuns and priests in Catholic school who made sex such a great big bad thing that I became interested in it much sooner than my public school friends. And of course, uh, I brought them up to speed as quickly as I could. Now, since Watts didn't focus on our sacred medicines in this talk and how they can be used to enhance sexual pleasure... I thought I should add just a word or two on the topic to uh, get you interested into looking into it on your own. Not that it takes any encouragement, I guess. But first of all, if you uh, just put the words sex and psychedelics in a Google search box, you'll get almost a million hits, including a link to the full text of the very famous 1967 Playboy magazine article that was titled Sex, Ecstasy, and the Psychedelic Drugs. And uh, keep in mind, that's not ecstasy as in MDMA, because this article came out well before Sasha Shulgin reintroduced the world to that important compound. 
But speaking of MDMA, whose street name is Ecstasy, I want to clear up what seems to be a common misconception. And that is that you can't have sex on ecstasy. What you can't have on ecstasy is an orgasm. But unless you think like blowjob Bill Clinton that you have to have an orgasm in a vagina to have sex, you're really missing out on some incredible sexual play while on MDMA. Now, I'm not going to go into any of the details, but I was lucky enough to be living in Dallas, Texas during the year when it was uh, ground zero for the widespread use of ecstasy. Personally, I knew well over a hundred people using it uh, before it became illegal, and almost all of them were using X in private, just uh, as a couple, and uh, staying up for hours in sexual play. You see, while orgasms are next to impossible on X, most men found that uh, they could have an erection that would last for hours, and uh, for some reason their partners never seemed to mind that their men didn't have an orgasm. (laughs) I think you get the picture. But if there is a psychedelic drug that uh, in many cases does work uh, somewhat like an aphrodisiac, I'd uh, think it must be LSD. And uh, again, the use of these substances in romantic settings with just two people is the way to find out if it works for you. Unfortunately, uh, most people today are using those two substances uh, mainly in large groups while dancing. And don't get me wrong, uh, hey, that's a lot of fun too. It's just that there are many ways to use and abuse these mind-altering chemicals, So don't get too set in your ways and rigid about how they can be used. Now, uh, how do I transition from talking about drugs and sex to a couple of announcements I'd like to make? I guess the best way, uh, since Ann and Sasha Shulgin have talked about this topic uh, several times in their Ask the Shulgin's talks, I'll pass along a little news about Sasha, who, uh, as you know, has been suffering through a series of physical setbacks. The good news is that he is now back home and that they were able to save his foot from being amputated. And even with all the physical problems he's going through right now, uh, his new book, The Shulgin Index, has uh, been sent off to the printers and will be available shortly. And there's actually a lot more news about Sasha that uh, Ann and his caregivers have been posting on his Facebook page. So if you're on Facebook, be sure to friend him and uh, catch up on all the latest news about our dearly beloved Sasha who Ann tells us has uh, still retained that merry Sasha sense of humor and joy that has uh, really always been his trademark. And so something I think we should all keep in mind is that uh, even with all of his current physical problems, on the inside he's still the same old Sasha. And uh, that's really basically true of all of us old guys, uh, which technically I am even though I don't feel very old, uh, most of the time at least. You know, just the other day I was talking to Gary Fisher and... uh, He told me that even though he's almost 80 years old and that he feels around 19 inside, well, that goes for me too and some of my other friends who uh, are what I guess is considered old and they all say the same. They're somewhere between 18 and 30 on the inside. I'm not sure uh, exactly what I think about that, to tell the truth, but maybe it's something worth thinking about. You know, if we feel inside that we're much younger than we actually are, Well, then what happened at that age to cause our thought patterns from time to time to become so deeply ingrained all these years later? And uh, how do we go about rebooting our thinking to take into account the changes that have taken place in our lives since then? And by the way, if you happen to be in that 18 to 30 age range right now, uh, maybe you should take close note of the fact that a significant number of people seem to get stuck in the mindset they hold at that age and... uh, Then get it massaged to where you can live with that particular mindset for the rest of your life, because odds are you will. I wonder if uh, this has something to do with the fact that until not too long ago, the average human lifespan was probably only around 30 years or so. 
And when you think about it from that angle, it raises a whole new set of interesting speculations, which uh, I'll leave for you to do on your own. But don't worry, it's not a homework assignment. Uh, there are no quizzes, tests, or exams here in the psychedelic salon. Just a little brain candy for you to chew on from time to time. Well, even though there uh, are several more things I should be passing along right now, I've got more boxes to pack. Uh, but I'll try to get another program out in a week or so. And uh, so again, I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find through psychedelicsalon.org. And if you're interested in books with a psychedelic flavor, you may want to listen to my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>